Welcome to the Restoration Church weekly podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And be sure to download the Church Center app. This is the best way to stay connected and up to date with all that's happening at Restoration Church. Most importantly, we hope the following message will help draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you weren't with us last week when we began the series, um, I had I had my my good friend Lucas Stoneberg, um, and he explained that bumper video which he made for us. He's eight years old, he's in third grade. Is this on, by the way? Can you hear that? Okay. Um, how cool was that though, right? Lucas Stoneberg, an eight-year-old making our bumper video. He had this whole vision of uh, a guy walking in a park and the nut falling on his head, and then he gets knocked out by it, and the spaceman comes down, helps him up. Love in a nutshell, right? How cool is that? So if you see Lucas wrong, give him a high five. Pretty cool. Um, in two weeks, we are starting a new series titled Asking for a Friend. Over the last several weeks, um, I have received about 20 questions from you. All across the, the, the gamut of like, does God exist to um, how does salvation work? Does my faith have to look like my parents' faith? I mean, all sorts of great questions. So um, in two weeks, we're starting a series called Asking for a Friend, where we're going to wrestle with all these great questions that you've given us. This is a great series to invite friends to, by the way. A lot of, we have, we have cards, we have invitation cards at both, both entrances. Um, you can pick up on your way out. Um, tag, again, on social media friends who might like to join you um, in these series. There's a list of all the questions we're going to be wrestling with over the six weeks of these series. Here's the thing, about one-third of the 20 or so questions I received had to do with one topic in particular. And so we're going to spend, after this series, Asking for a Friend, we're going to spend five weeks with one of your question threads in a series titled Eteum Ibon Talud Kusta Sit. And that actually says, let's talk about you and me. Okay. I was only, I was only joking about that. Let's talk about, let's talk about you. Thank you. Let's talk about you and me. Okay. That's an old salt and pepper song from the nineties. Let's talk about you and me. One third of your questions had to do with sexuality. And so it's obviously a hot button topic right now. We're going to spend five weeks digging through the Bible and seeing what we can discover about human sexuality throughout the month of July. So should be good times. You're thinking this is so confusing. Why don't you just say it? And the reason is that's on purpose, right? Because this topic is confusing. And so the image for it is confusing. Let's talk about you and me. But today we are in part two of our series, Love in a Nutshell. Love, like sexuality, I think is often confusing within our culture. Last week I mentioned two primary ways our, our society is defining love in modern days. It is tolerance and eroticism, two of the, the primary ways that love is being defined. Tolerance seems progressive. It seems forward-thinking. It seems, it seems um, it's forward-thinking, but there's a fine line between tolerance and apathy, and the opposite of Love is apathy, and so we're not going to define love as tolerance like our society does. And eroticism is based on feelings which are subjective and passive in nature. And when we follow our feelings, when we allow them to be the driver of our lives, all sorts of chaotic things can happen. And we find ourselves in all sorts of chaotic situations. And so we're not going to define love through cultural lens. In this series, we're rather looking to, we're, we're looking at Jesus and we're considering that, as John wrote, that this is love, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. This is love. 
Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love. Not how society is defining it. This is love. It's defined through Jesus Christ. Love is self-giving action for the good of another. And so whenever the New Testament writers are, are talking about how to act, they always look at Jesus to get our cues from Jesus. They always look at Jesus and say, how did Jesus behave? How did Jesus think? What was Jesus' attitude? How did Jesus live? Let's live then like that. And we talked last week about how we don't actually have that power within us, that love is from God, and this is gifted them by his Holy Spirit, empowering us to live as he has lived. And so our job is not to try more. Our job is to surrender more. And God's Spirit then will do the work through us as we do that. An example of all of this is actually found in Colossians 3. That's going to be our text for today. If you have text with you, Colossians 3, starting at verse 12. Here's what it says in verse 12. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Now, as people who have been given the, the mantle of responsibility to represent God is what he is saying here. Acknowledge first and foremost that you are dearly loved. You are dearly loved. Dearly loved. You are loved. I don't know who of you needs to hear that this morning, but this is a message in itself, my friends. You are loved. Some of you don't think that's a very profound statement. It's interesting. Karl Barth, he was a um, Protestant theologian in the 20th century. Some, some would argue maybe the greatest theologian of the 20th century. He was once asked a question while riding on a train. He said, hey, hey Karl, what is, what is the most profound truth that you've ever learned? Throughout your studies in, in Christian theology and Christian scripture, what is the most profound truth that you've ever learned? He thought for a second. He said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. And you're like, that's not profound. I was taught that as an infant. You know, I was, that song was sung over me as a child. Like, I've known that my whole life. That's not profound. And, and here's, here's the challenge, right? So many of us look at this, this truth that God loves us, that we are dearly loved, and we're like, that's not profound anymore. That's not insightful. And so we just kind of let it sink to the back of our minds, and we don't let it do what it's supposed to do, and we don't let it inform our lives. We don't let it inform our identities. We don't let it inform how we go about living upon this planet, how we live in relationships, how we treat others. We don't let the love of God inform us. And so life is a mess more often than not. And for some of you, you're thinking, well, that's not true. I wish I could believe that that's true, but that's not the God that I was introduced to. Life has had too many sour moments to believe that. Circumstances have been too hard to believe that. If God really loved me, then my life wouldn't be like this. If God really loved me, then this wouldn't have happened. If God really loved me, then she wouldn't have died. And so for, for a lot of us, it's just not profound anymore. And for a lot of us, we just don't believe it because maybe it's beaten out of us as a child by the, the woes of life. My friends, you are loved. As a first importance, you need to understand that you are loved. Paul would say, this is the first thing that you need to know. You are loved. That informs everything else. You are loved. I could just stand here for the next half hour and just say that over and over again. You are loved. And that would be a valuable message because it changes everything. If you've ever struggled with this thought, I'm, I'm, I'm betting you that maybe you've never struggled with it, but somebody that you're close to has struggled with it. And so we're, we're going to unpack this a little bit, the theology of how God loves us a little bit before we venture on into further what, what Paul wants to write to the Colossians. But I want you to understand that this is valuable not just for you and your own heart, it's valuable for your witness. Because there are a lot of people in the world who are, who are just limping through life, not either believing this or have letting it drift so far into the background that they just... They don't know what to do with it anymore. And so let this not only impact your heart, let it impact your witness. 
we're going to venture into a story that was written during a time of intense trial and grief. It's a story that most of us are familiar with, whether we've read the Bible or not. If you're not familiar with the story itself, you're certainly familiar with the characters. The story was written while the Israelites were slaves to a cruel taskmaster, the Pharaoh of the Egyptians. Now, the the Israelites are miserable, and they're dying in mud-filled ditches, making bricks all day. They're given less straw and more work. It's just miserable. They're slaves. They are living miserable lives while the Pharaoh is sitting on his parapet in luxury, overseeing it all. And the traditional and historic symbol of the Pharaoh was the snake, and the snake in upright position, ready to pounce, ready to attack. So Moses, the author of the story that we're about to venture into, leverages the fear of the snake as the main antagonist of this story. And I tell you all this because this is a portion of scripture that we're about to read is is literature. And I don't want you to get hung up on the idea that there's a talking snake as part of this, right? It's a piece of literature. Moses, the author, is using the snake as a familiar archetype of evil. And so we're told in Genesis 3 that a snake slithered its way into God's good, well-ordered, happy, thriving creation with intent on throwing it into chaos. He wanted to take all that was right and pleasing and perfect and good in the world and throw it into ruin. And he does so by convincing God's creatures of a single lie, a single lie that once believed would change everything and throw everything into chaos. And it's still affecting every single one of us, our hearts, the way we view ourselves, the way we live in relationships the way we work, it's still impacting all of us today. The serpent said to the woman later named Eve, did God really say, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Well, God didn't really just say that you can't benefit from all of your hard work, did he? God didn't really just say that the the backbreaking labor that you are doing and the hard work that you are doing can't be benefited from, did he? You should be able to eat whatever you want. You're the one out here making this stuff grow. You're the one out here working at the sweat of your brow. You're the one out here doing all the work. You should be able to eat whatever you want. Well, Eve replies, we're free to eat, but he told us that we can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. Otherwise, we'll die. And it sounds like, it sounds like God is actually wanting to protect us. Well, it sounds like that, the serpent would say. But you won't die. The only reason God says that is because he's protecting himself. He knows that if you eat it, your eyes will be opened and the truth about him will be revealed. You will become like him. What do you mean our eyes are closed? Eve might have responded. What do you mean that we're blind and that God wants to keep us blind because he's hiding who he really is, right? Eve's mind begins to spiral, right? It's just a simple lie. It's just a simple half truth that he tells and eve's mind begins to spiral if we become like him then he's going to have to scoot over and share his throne so of course he'd much rather keep us in the dark he'd much rather keep us under his foot he'd much rather keep his throne to himself see this is the picture that the serpent paints of god he's greedy he's manipulative he's power hungry he's coercive and when he's threatened he becomes greedy so eve god can't be trusted He's keeping secrets from you. He's keeping you in the dark. God doesn't love you, Eve. You're just a pawn. You're the weakest of the players. You're the most expendable, the easiest to manipulate. God doesn't love you. And Eve's mind then begins to spiral some more. Uh, Doubt begins to fill her mind and she reasons it through. You know, if, if God doesn't love me, then, then God can't be trusted to take care of me. And if no one is taking care of me, then I better take take care of myself i better grab control 
My friends, it was this fundamental lie, God does not love me, that led Eve to be self-concerned, which led to her self-preservation, which led to, to establishing her self-reign and her self-made kingdom. And then she called her husband Adam over and he said, hey, Adam, you should, you should eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know, the one that God told us not to eat of? Yeah, I ate from it and it's good. You should try someone, of course, because men are idiots. He did so and he ate the tree. And now you have two self-made kingdoms. And now you have two people who are claiming thrones and naturally they begin to war at each other. They begin to blame shift and accuse. They point fingers. They complain. They bicker. They argue. They lie. They manipulate all in all, they are rather miserable. If you know how the story progresses, right? Their, their first son kills their second son, right? Murder is introduced into the world. And from there, the world just spirals into chaos and greed and manipulation and, and wars break out and genocides take place and depression and anxiety and fear fill human hearts and they cast their shadow over the human experience and the world just falls into ruin, See, humanity and God's good creation is ruined by selfishness, born from self-preservation, which grew from self-concern because at one point humanity believed and acted on the lie. God does not love me. And here's why this matters. Because the fundamental reason, I'm going to think about this for a minute, the fundamental reason, the reason that is buried deep in you, so deep that you don't even realize it, so deep that it's just natural, so deep that it's below your consciousness. The reason that the world is in such a mess and the reason that your relationships are messy, the reason that there's hurt in your household, the reason that there's, there's hurt when you look in the mirror, the reason that there's hurt in all of our relationships, the reason that you don't get along with people is because you and they, along with everyone else, has believed the lie, I am not loved. And from there, every single one of us has sought to gain control, believing that if we are not loved, then we will not be cared for, so we better take care of number one. Our belief about God's love for us informs everything that we do and say and think. This lie turned our hearts inward, and our selfishness has wreaked havoc on the world. And so just take a moment and think about the world and think about the constant chaos and think about any relational hurt or selfishness driven by the single lie that is behind it. The world's a mess. We know it. Households are a mess. We know it. Individual lives are a mess. We know it. And the story of world history is described by every nation that wrote it, including the Jewish scriptures, is of a world and every person who has ever walked upon it living under this lie. And though God has spoken his love and illustrated his love time and time and time and time again, people rejected it as they sought control because they believed that they were not loved. But thankfully God didn't give up. Despite our rebellion and the fact that we had established our thrones against his, despite the fact that we are his enemies, despite the fact that we are sinners, he chased us down not to destroy us, but to save us. That is love. He proves his love for us. God in his greatest act of empathy became one of us. He lived among us and he lived for us. He died the death that we deserved. He took our rebellion to the grave, which could not hold him because it never had him. And in a radical act of love, God invites us to believe again that we are loved and to allow this simple yet profound truth to change us. My friends, God loves you might be the most profound thing that's ever been said. You need to believe it again. God loves you. 
God loves you. John, one of Jesus' best friends, wrote in a letter that we've already looked at, this is how God showed his love among us. He's proving his love for us. He sent his son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Paul, who was an early follower of Jesus, wrote this in a letter to other followers of Jesus in Rome. God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still God's enemies, while we were still rejecting him, Jesus Christ died for us to prove that God loves us. He writes a little later in the same letter, And I am convinced that neither, le- ni- neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing that can deny that God loves us. And knowing and believing and trusting our Creator, sovereign over the universe loves us, it reverses Eve's spiral thinking. My friends, if God loves me, and God will do all things for my good, then He can be trusted to care for me and provide for all my needs. I don't need to take control, which has only created anxiety, worry, and fear, because God is watching over me, looking out for me, caring for me, guiding me, and providing for me. Here's the thing, friends. We learn that God loves us as a child, and that's great. And, and that's, that's, that's the entry point into discipleship, in, into the life of Jesus, right? Into, into growing, into becoming more like Christ. That's the entry point. God loves me. But then we need to unpack that. We need to understand that if God loves me, then he can be trusted to care for me. And he can be trusted to provide for me. And he can be trusted to heal me and to take care of me. That's what growth is. It's handing more of ourselves over to the God who loves us. Trusting more of our lives into the hands of the God who loves us. Whenever something happens in life that tries to convince me that God doesn't love me, I can rest knowing that although we may not know why every single bad things happen in this world, the truth is it cannot be because God does not love us. I don't know why, why, why things happen in the world the way they do. I don't know why life is challenging sometimes. I don't know why circumstances are adverse sometimes. But I do know that it cannot be that God does not love us. God has proven that he loves us. And so Paul says, of first importance, know that you are dearly loved. Know that you are dearly loved. And knowing this, having this love in you and filling you up, how then should you respond? And so he continues. Paul tells him, knowing that you're dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. Compassion literally means to suffer with another. To willingly share another's hardships. It's empathy put into action. It's seeing another person down in the trenches of life and not just saying, oh man, I'm really sorry. I'll be praying for you. It's getting down into the trenches with them and being alongside of them. It's suffering with another. James says, if all you do is talk about love, if all you do is talk about the idea of love and say, hey, I wish you well. I'm sorry that your life sucks, but I wish you well. That's not love, he says. Love is active. It gets down into the trenches when others are hurting. Seeing their struggle and their pain, their hurt, their sorrow, it's joining them in those moments and walking alongside them when life is hard. Paul then says, beyond compassion, let the love of God fill you up and clothe you in kindness. It's a word that hinges on the idea of consideration. To be considerate, he would say. To acknowledge that there are other people in the room. And my friends, we just aren't very good at this as humans. 
There are other people who are impacted by your decisions. There are other people impacted by the way you choose to live your life, and you should consider them when making decisions. It's inconsiderate to triple park. You know why? Because the person in the middle is going to have a really time, hard time getting out, and so just don't do it. Consider them. There was a woman at a, my kid's baseball game a couple weeks ago who was just walking up and down, screaming at the fields, Who triple parked me? She was yelling out, who owns the black Subaru? You triple parked me. It's inconsiderate. It's a simple thing, but it's inconsiderate. It's inconsiderate to leave your dirty dishes at the table because somebody else now is going to have to go and pick them up. You're not considering the other people in the household. It's inconsiderate not to pick up your room that you share with another person and not to consider their level of cleanliness. It's it's inconsiderate to waste time when you know someone is waiting on you. It's inconsiderate to order everything off the menu when you know your friend has already said that they were going to pick up the bill. It's inconsiderate to stand in front of others who are already there watching the game too. If you make plans without consideration, if you spend money without consideration, if you move without consideration, knowing your movement will affect others, you're just being a jerk. And Paul says love doesn't do that. But kindness considers the other person in your decisions and how it will impact those. And then you make decisions appropriately. You look at the room and you consider, wow, how are my decisions going to impact other people in this household? Consideration. He then says, clothe yourself in humility. The natural inclination is to take whatever power we have and to push others down with it. We drift towards selfish living In our race to be first and to be the best and in the front of the line, we push and we fight and we bite and we claw to get there. And this selfish action, it erodes relationships. But humility thinks less of itself. A humble person isn't groveling in self-pity. They think that they ought to think less of themselves. A humble person is merely thinking of themselves less. It's just not about them. That's it. A humble person just doesn't consider themselves. It's just not about them. They're being considerate of others. They recognize they're joining others in the trenches may cost them something, but they're not thinking about themselves. They're just thinking about others. That's humility. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm thinking about others. Paul then says to clothe yourselves in gentleness and patience. A recent study um, actually indicated that what causes the most anger in most people is an offense to our time. Anybody can relate to that or agree with that? When our time is offended, it's like it brings out this angst in people that many, not many other things can bring out. Paul seemed to have known this because he paired our need to be gentle with our need to be patient. He would just say, don't push each other, friends. Don't, don't push each other to go at your own pace, but bend low to go at the pace of others. Don't demand that other people adapt to you, but adapt to the other person's pace. This may mean that you set new schedules, that you set new routines and develop new habits as you get out the door in a timely manner because you know that that's important to the other person. Or it may mean that you loosen your expectations and provide the other person the time that they need. Lastly, Paul tells his people after having known that they are loved and being filled with the love of God to bear with one another and to forgive one another. I tell you right now, friends, we need to learn to put up with little things. And that's a hard word for some of us. We don't need to make a mountain out of every molehill. We need to learn to put up with little things. The clothes pile on the side of the bed, rise above it. The dishes left around the house, rise above it. You're thinking that's just contradictory to what you just said with consideration. I'll get to that in a minute. Just hang on. 
rise above it. The car left on empty again, rise above it. The hair in the shower, rise above it. Your life is too short, your calling is too great to be bogged down by little things. And then he says you should forgive others too. Don't just, don't just bear with one another, but forgive others. Not because they deserve it, but because you've been forgiven of far worse than what they've committed against you. Some of you are thinking, Ross, you have no idea what they've done. And that's true. But I do know that you have been forgiven of every sin that you've ever committed and ever will commit. You've been forgiven, and so we should forgive others. And though forgiveness does not demand reconciliation, those are two separate things. Forgiveness, reconciliation, they're two separate things. The hope of forgiveness is always reconciliation. The hope of forgiveness is always the restoration of the relationship. It's always the restoration of the individual that has been offended and who has been the offender. That is the hope of forgiveness. God forgave you not so that you'd be free to be estranged from him, God forgave you so that ultimately your relationship with him would be restored. And then he has passed on to us a ministry of reconciliation. We too are to be reconcilers. We too are to do all that we can to restore and reconcile relationships. And we are to look at Jesus' behavior, Paul would say. This isn't just a list of rules that I want you to follow because I think they'd make for a better society. Paul is getting all of this from his looking at Jesus. This is how Jesus behaved. This is how Jesus acted. This is how Jesus thought. Why should we live like this? Because this is how God loves you. God is compassionate. He came into the world to suffer with us. God in his kindness considered our situation and he died for us. God in humility took on flesh and he bore our pain. God in his patience did not demand that we go at his pace, but he accommodated to our pace. And God in his grace did not look at the mountain of sin that we had accumulated against him and said, it was too much. But he shed his blood to forgive us of every sin that we could ever possibly commit. And so Paul would say, hey guys, I get that. That was a lot. That was a, that was a big dump of information on you. He's going to step back for a minute. He said, Okay, I'm just going to make this really easy on you. Here, here's what I want you to know. Over all these virtues, compassion, kindness, humility, patience, bearing with each other, forgiving each other, the grace that you extend, over all these virtues, clothe yourselves in love because love binds them all together in perfect unity. Love isn't what Hollywood tells us love is or what society wants us to believe about it. Love is gritty. Love gets dirty. Love bends low. Love is ugly at times. John, one of the original followers of Jesus, would later go on to say that love is most prominently displayed in the cross of Jesus. You want to know what love looks like? Look at Jesus hanging on the cross. You want to know what love looks like? Look at Jesus and how he lived. That is love. Love dies so another might live. Love gives so another might have. Love sacrifices for another's blessing. Love is self-giving action for the good of another. I'm going to invite Kate forward. We're going to sing one final song as we reflect on this. Now, here's the thing. Some of you are thinking right now, some of you are thinking, and some of your relationships with significant others, spouses, children, neighbors, coworkers, where this is evident in their thinking, you're, you're, you're thinking about this. Yay. They have to be patient with me, so I get to be lazy. If they really love me, then I get to be lazy. 
Or, yay, they need to rise above the offense, and so I can just be a slob because they need to love me so I can just leave my clothes everywhere. Or, or, or hey, I can treat them however I want because they have to forgive me. Or, yay, I'll always get my way because they have to consider me in their actions. But that's not love, and you know that. Love is death to my selfish ways in order to meet others where they are. Love means changing my selfish ways in order to embrace others. Love means giving of myself to make someone else's existence better. And this isn't just you doing it for them. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Because some of you are enabling the relationship to be harmful. Love is not just about you doing it for them, friends. It needs to be reciprocated. We serve a God who modeled this for us within himself. He is Trinitarian. This love is what binds God together. The give and the receive. The give and the receive. The give and the receive. If you want to be in a healthy, life-giving relationship, there is give and there is receive. You need that, friends. And you need boundaries if it is not happening. You need to remember that this is not something that you can conjure up by your own strength. This is not something that you can just try harder at doing. This comes when you surrender more. Love is the daily, hourly, minute-by-minute, moment-by-moment decision to take up your cross, to die to yourself, and to lift up another. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that if you choose to follow me, if you choose to live this way, if you choose to bend low, if you choose to die and give and sacrifice and bend low, if you choose this way, He says this when he's washing his disciples' feet, right? The Lord of the universe, the creator of all that is, bent low to wash his disciples' feet. He says, if you can model this kind of life, empowered by my spirit in you, you will be blessed. Makarios, it's a Greek word that means happy. You'll be happy. If you can be in a relationship where you are giving and you are receiving this kind of love, where you are bending low for another and they are bending low for you, if you're sacrificing for them, they are sacrificing for you, You empty yourself and then they fill it back up with themselves. You will be happy. Because that is how we are created to live. And so, the second lesson. God loves you. And as his love for you fills you, it will overflow into others in compassion, consideration, gentleness, patience, humility, and grace. And if your relationships are healthy, friends, you'll receive these from others too.